0: It's June the 9th, 2023. This is the Room Now Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, back from Milan, and you are 2023. The meeting wrapped this past Saturday. Um, We didn't do a podcast last week because we were in the middle of day three, a very hectic day, so we held off our sort of summation of the meeting until today, uh, June the 9th. And in this podcast, I'd like to review some of the highlights. Uh, And in looking back on the meeting, it was a good meeting. You should be commended for getting back to normal. They tried to do posters. They could have done a better job of posters. Um, But the sessions were really well run, um, really well moderated. Um, A lot of good questions from the audience. A lot of great research was presented. Um, I want to review for you what I think are some of the highlights or for research in lupus, RA, gout, systemic JIA, maybe a few others. So in lupus, there were some real highlights that came out. A lot of new molecules, a lot of ones that are basically in phase two and may go to phase three. But let's begin with a drug that looked great in phase two and then failed in phase three and is no longer being pursued, and that's baricitinib. That's right. The selective JAK inhibitor that looked good in phase two, but didn't look good in the BRAVE 1 and 2 trials. And hence, Lilly has suspended its development of baricitinib for lupus. Interestingly, though, uh, another group did their own trial. And this is a head-to-head trial of four milligrams of baricitinib against IV cyclophosphamide 0.7 milligrams per meter squared given monthly this is OP0053, the efficacy and safety of baricitinib in patients with active lupus nephritis, a placebo-controlled or an active-controlled uh, phase 3 trial. So in this study, um, they had uh, 30 patients in each group. Uh, and the question is, you know, what's the endpoint? They're going after lupus nephritis. These were patients with class 3 and class 4 uh, proliferative disease. The primary endpoint was a single variable, and that was proteinuria judged at week 24 and week 12, week 12 being the primary endpoint. At both week 12 and week 24, the baricitinib outperformed significantly so cyclophosphamide. So week 12, significant reductions in proteinuria was 70% on baricitinib and only 43% on the cyclophosphamide. When you looked at it out to week 24 and i think even 48 it was something like still 75 versus 50. it was still very significant now the fault here of course is that they're using proteinuria as an endpoint and there are many other endpoints that could be used should be used but it turns out some of their secondary endpoints also look good here the question is why is lily not pursuing this drug and again the reason they're not is because they had very high placebo response rates in their placebo control trials in the brave 1 and brave 2 actually in one of those trials it was really a very high level and killed any efficacy that could be seen with the drug so this is kind of confusing i think it's good data but really maybe it helps other JAK inhibitors such as ducravacitinib Tick-2 inhibitor or apatinib and that's still in play more on that in a minute the next Three are drugs that are in development and in phase two. OP0137, B and we've seen this before, it's a novel dual inhibitor of Bliss in April. It's supposed to knock out B cells, a phase three randomized placebo controlled trial. It's approved in, in, um, in China since 2021. The primary endpoint was uh, week 52. Um, And it looked at SRI-4 going in. And you know what? They did very well. 80% if you were on the dual inhibitor, teletasticep, and 40% on placebo. Very clean, but this needs to be repeated. It's only phase two. Again, a lot of lupus trials look great in phase two and not so good in phase three when the numbers get higher, when they go to more centers being studied. Another new compound is ionalumab. Also called VAY737. This is from Novartis. It's an anti BAF receptor monoclonal antibody. Poster number is 0120. And they gave this to, as a monthly um, subcutaneous uh, drug given uh, over a six month period in patients with active SLE. They only enrolled 67 patients. The primary endpoint was a week 28. Uh, SRI-4 and then being on le- 5 milligrams or less of prednisone. And at week 24 week 28 it was 70% on the BAF receptor inhibitor and 24% on placebo. So an early phase 2 looks good. This drug has also been studied and looked good in Sjogren's Syndrome. Uh, and lastly, the other phase 2 trial uh, comes from, uh, from Avi OP0139 the efficacy and safety of ABBV599 high dose, uh, it's a combination of L's-brutinib, it's a BTK inhibitor, and opatacitin. Four arms, placebo, opatacitinib alone, or the combination of opatacitinib plus L's-brutinib. Turns out that opatacitinib outperform placebo. Opatacitinib plus the BTK outperformed placebo. The BTK inhibitor didn't add anything to epatocitinib, so that's out of the picture, right? Again, this was a fairly large trial, 341 patients. It would get trimmed at the end because the results were so good. Um, But nonetheless, the endpoint of an SRI-4 response and being on steroids of 10 milligrams or less was significant, clinically and statistically significant for epatocitinib. This is phase 2. We look forward to a much larger phase 3. And lastly... Um, With ACR, we talked about Ducravacitinib, the Paisley study, a very large 3-400 patient study in phase two, looked really good, you know, and the question is why. And this poster, POS-0112, looked at the mechanisms um, that underlied the response that was seen in the Paisley study. And in this study, they showed pretty convincingly um, that Ducravacitinib, the TIC2 inhibitor, uh, suppresses uh, interfere on genes, uh, it in, in, in interferes with B-cell pathways, serologic markers, a bunch of uh, chemokines including CXL10 um, and uh, CD38 and autoantibodies go down. So it sort of lays out the mechanism by which uh, Ducraficidinib did give a good clinical response in that phase 2 trial. Let's move on to rheumatoid arthritis. Um, a nice report from uh, Austria and Dan Alataha's group, OP0272, looked at the role of rheumatoid factor in clinical responses. They have about 2,000 RA patients. They studied patients, about 470, I think, who had moderate to high disease activity and who were seropositive with rheumatoid factor. And they looked across the board and they showed that patients who reduced their rheumatoid factor by 50% or who went zero negative, had significantly better and faster responses. So with three months of starting any DMARD, and they didn't sort of separate out which DMARDs gave you this response. This was not exclusively, for instance, an all-rituximab response. They had a few rituximab patients, but not many. But they also didn't give you much data about the drugs that were being used in this DMARD-treated cohort of nearly 500 patients, Nonetheless, rheumatoid factor was a rheumatoid factor responder, someone who lowered their rheumatoid factor or went through a negative. And that was seen at 21% of three months and 32% of six months. And that was associated with faster responses uh, and more, more uh, remissions and uh, patients achieving low disease activity states. The question is, would this outperform any other biomarkers like CRP or the you know, MBDA or, you know, Lord knows what. So more needs to be seen on this. Um, it's been long known that if you did go from positive to negative, that patients tend to do well. Except we don't do that. We shouldn't do that. I'm still advocating you not do serial rheumatoid factors or ACPAs or ANAs in your patients. Again, that's a special kind of stupid. I would not do it. But this research says you probably should do it but I need to see this research being done. I need to see more details on this because the, the number of patients or the number of drugs that actually lower rheumatoid factor in a consistent manner are very few. Rituximab, abatacept, maybe JAK inhibitors. IL-6 inhibitors don't. TNF inhibitors don't. Methotrexate doesn't. But then again, there's an occasional TNF inhibitor, IL-6 or methotrexate patient who does lower their rheumatoid factor. And that probably reflects overall down-regulation of the immune response, and yes, patients are going to do better. So is it causal or casual? Is it epiphenomenal or, you know, idiopathogenic? I I think we need more research on this, but I think it's great research, and they should be commended for uh, looking at this. OP-0130 is the long-awaited EPIPRA study uh, a preclinical RA cohort 206 patients They had to be um, seropositive going in uh, and have arthralgia. And these were relatively mild patients um, with preclinical RA, and they were randomized to receive either placebo or uh, apatase 125 milligrams a week for 12 12 months, and then they were followed for 12 months off of therapy. At the end of 12 months of therapy, significantly fewer patients on apatase developed rheumatoid arthritis, 6% versus 29% on placebo. But then in the next 12 months, off all drug, the lines came closer together, but they never joined. So it looked like it delayed the disease, but may have prevented the disease in some people. The delay in the onset of RA between the two groups was a a mean of 99 uh, 99 months. No, 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 no. Um, 99, couldn't have been 99 months. Could have been, must have been 99. Days or weeks, you choose. It doesn't matter. Anyway, the point is that it did have a significant delay. Interestingly, when they looked at patients who had very high titers of ACPA, or patients who had four or more rheumatoid autoantibodies, IgA and IgM ACPA, rheumatoid factor, um, anti-acetylcysteine antibodies, never heard of that before, anti-CARP antibodies. If you had all of those, there was a dramatic difference between the two lines, even at two years. So if you had all those autoantibodies, that's called an extended autoantibody profile, only 10% or less with that extended autoantibody profile developed RA, but those that were seronegative, 50% or more developed RA. So it was still much better spread. Anyway, it's starting to sort out where we're going in treating preclinical RA, and it's looking good for Apatassa. Lastly, um, uh, a late-breaking abstract looked at a new dual inhibitor of Jak1 and TIC2. It's called TLL018. Head-to-head against tofacitinib 5 milligrams bid. Both drugs were given bid in a phase 2a trial. Uh, again, this looked really good with surprising results, almost too good to be true. Week 12 ACR50 responders was 72 percent for the 30 milligram uh, TLL-018, that's 30 milligrams BID, compared to 42% on tofacitinib. That's a big difference. uh, And that's an ACR 50 response. Similar results were seen at week 12 as far as remission rates. So we need to see this being developed more. This is an early phase two study. Again, more is needed. You know, I have to give you some uh, feedback on what I think was a trend at ACR and now at ULAR an abundance of studies that are recreating the data set for oral surveillance to see if they can reproduce the results of oral surveillance. I'll remind you, oral surveillance was a study of, you know, 4,500 patients followed for more than four years. You were either treated with five milligrams or 10 milligrams BID of tofacitinib versus a TNF inhibitor. And they were looking for MACE events and malignancies and you know the results, right? Um, that that the JAK inhibitor didn't look as good as a TNF inhibitor as far as having maybe more of these events. But maybe that could be viewed that the TNF inhibitor is more protective against MACE events than was the JAK inhibitor, more protective against cancers, leukemia, lymphoma, not leukemia, lymphoma, lung cancer, and skin cancer than the JAK inhibitor. So there are a lot of studies that are actually looking at large data sets, claims data, registry data, long-term open extension data. And they have tremendous numbers, larger than what's in the uh, oral surveillance study. And they subset out the people that have the same enrollment characteristics, over age 50, at least one, one cardiovascular risk factor. And they see if you have more, more MACE events, major adverse cardiovascular events, or more cancers. And guess what? All these studies at, at ACR 2022 and ULAR 2023 lo and behold, oh my goodness, we don't see it. Well, of course you don't see it. You're not the same kind of study. That's a well-designed, you know, active control, blinded study that's power to answer the question. These recreations of data based on files you have in your cabinet don't really cut the mustard. So the jackpot study, OP0219, looked at the incidence of major adverse cardiovascular events, and in there, greater than 30,000 patients with more than 54,000 treatment courses um, showed that they did not have higher rates of MACE in patients on JAK inhibitors. They compared patients on JAK inhibitors to patients on TNF inhibitors to patients on other MOA biologics, other mechanism action biologics, non-TNF biologics. And lo and behold, the JAK inhibitors were not worse and especially in the population that was reconstructed to look like the oral surveillance study. The problem was, there's always a problem here. And the major glaring problem was their MACE event rates, not different between the three groups, was 1.73, 1.94, and 2.55 MACE events per 1,000 patient years for the Jax, the TNFs, and the other MOAs. That's basically two events per 1,000 patient years. In the oral surveillance study, the rates of major adverse cardiovascular events was about 1 per 100 patient years. So these registry manipulations of data don't quite match what was seen as far as the event rates. Why are they having a log lower, tenfold lower event rates than was seen in this other multinational study called oral surveillance? And again, it's the limitations of registries. Maybe the only encouraging thing out of this particular study was the data was the same in all groups. So even if there was a fault in how the data was collected, the results showed that the groups were not different as far as MACE events. I don't know. I think these rebuttal studies to oral surveillance, whether it's cancer outcomes or major cardiovascular outcomes are a gigantic waste of time. If you really want to disprove the oral surveillance study, do your own study, prospective, randomized, placebo or active control, um, and then do your analysis. The net result is not that you can't give jack inhibitors to people over age 40 with a cardiovascular event. The net result is the people who got the cardiovascular events in oral surveillance over age 65, prior MI, and smokers. Those are the people that I don't give jack inhibitors to because I got so many other options. They happen. They happen to be a minority of the patients in my clinic. I think there were two major reports on gout that were interesting. LB, late-breaking 2 the safety and efficacy of SEL212 in patients with chronic refractory gout to refractory to steroids and other conventional therapy. They had they, uh, This was presented by Herb Baraf. Great presentation. Two studies, the Dissolve-1, Dissolve-2. Is that not a good study name for a drug that you hope was going to make TOFI go away. SEL-212 is two drugs given together. One is a nanoparticle of rapamycin that's given to tolerize and, and limit the induction of anti-PEG antibodies that goes with the, um, the, the uricase molecule. It's called pe- pegadricase. Pegadricase. I got to keep saying that. It's an IV infusion. Uh, together, this is called SEL-212. And the results were great. Um, the primary endpoint in both studies was um, uh, lowering your uric acid below uh, 6.0. And they all did this really, really well. However, as great as these um, uricase-like uh, therapies are, um, you only achieve your endpoint in about 40%, 50% of patients. Higher in the U.S., less in the worldwide study. Um, why you're not doing this in everyone, is hard to know, but at least it works in half the patients. Um, we await uh, probably a larger, um, uh, Maybe I don't know, this actually might be enough to go in front of the FDA. A newer molecule called AR882 uh, is a URAT1 inhibitor that's in development, OPO295. The 12-week double-blind uh, placebo-controlled study of Phase two IIb. Uh, again, this inhibits URAT1 a little bit like Lesinorad, but it's safer and it works in, in patients with renal impairment. Um, as best they could tell from this cohort. They, they studied this in a fairly large cohort. The primary endpoint was your uric acid levels um, dropping below six. And at week 12, uh, patients actually started out in the study with uric acid levels of around eight to nine, like eight and a half, eight point six. 8.6. And whether you're on the 50 milligram dose or the 75 milligram dose, um, you, you went down to like an average uric acid level of like 3.5. So almost everybody got below five, and these are people who had tofacius disease or refractory disease. So this looks to be a promising compound for the treatment of gout. A few more, there were two long-term studies that are comforting. Uh, Georg Schett did an update to his CART T-cell therapy uh, report, OP0141. He now, uh, at ACR he presented five patients, here at U.R. he presents seven patients all you know refractory to multiple therapies with lupus all stopping those therapies and going on car t-cell and they all go into remission they all drop their b-cell numbers again really impressive results he also reviewed the sporadic use of again car t-cell in antisynthetase syndrome and also in scleroderma so we're going to start seeing more car t-cell therapies for these refractory autoimmune diseases this is novel therapy uh, and the more it gets used the cheaper it becomes the other great follow-up was uh, uh, opo 166 uh, Fabrizio Di Benedetti, again, giving us an update on the long-term results with emipalumab, a drug that's approved for HLH. Uh, in this study, it was being given to 14 patients with uh, systemic JI who developed macrophage activation syndrome, and the interesting thing about that is continued efficacy and um, no long-term toxicity. And the vast majority of patients all dropped their steroid use. Um, You know, and what I liked about this study was these patients were very sick. They developed MAS, and half of them continued their anakinra throughout the study. And then you stop the MAPaliumab and they stay on the anakinra going forward. So this was encouraging data about the long term safety. There were a few reports on Stills' disease, um, AB1503 from Ruchetti and whatnot. Interesting, looked at the impact of obesity in uh, adults and kids with Still's disease on outcomes, and they showed that um, you were, if you were obese um, with Still's disease, you're more likely to have a, clinic, a chronic clinical course, prolonged disease, and be refractory to at least one biologic DMARD. It's very similar to that you see with ob- obesity's effects in RA and PSA and even AS, where it, it basically, obesity adds to the inflammatory burden of the disease and makes the disease difficult to control. Another abstract I thought was interesting was OP0034 from Fall et al. Looks at the predictive utility of calprotectin, also known as MRP8-14, uh, myeloid-related protein 8, myeloid-related protein 14. These are S100 proteins that really outperform other biomarkers in distinguishing systemic JIA from all other JIA from other autoimmune diseases and other inflammatory conditions, including infection. This is really a cool thing. We wrote about it in about 2022 as a novel biomarker for Stills disease. This should be used uh, early on in the diagnosis and probably should be used uh, in following patients. Lastly, I want to talk about artificial intelligence, uh, machine learning, deep learning, Uh, neural networks and chat GPT it's all over the place it's all over the meeting and the bottom line is that we saw examples of this now starting to make practical sense where they're showing the use of these tools um, that can now predict disease like RA can now predict the progression of x-rays and MRIs in RA or in spondylitis can now help develop the next best therapy, because when you choose your next DMARD, you're going with your gut. You know the data, you know your, what you've seen, but you're guessing. It's a coin toss. I think with artificial intelligence, what I call moneyball approach to treatment, you're going to get smarter. You're going to be the digitally enhanced physician. This is what the future is going to look like. In the future, there's going to be more patients with rheumatic disease and less rheumatologists. You won't be there to make the diagnosis. But you know who can make the diagnosis? Artificial intelligence. By reading M- MRs and make the diagnosis of rare diseases like EGPA, uh, like relapsing polychondritis, like even RA, and help channel patients who you need to see into your clinics. I think this is the future. We need to keep our eye on this research going forward. I enjoyed ULAR 2023. I hope you've enjoyed the coverage uh, provided by the fabulous faculty that was at the meeting working hard on this. They did a really good job. Uh, you'll continue to see more and more uh, content from your twenty twenty three video over, uh, over the next few weeks on Room Now. Tune in next week. Bye-bye.